Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great to be here, though. Uh, great to roll in on a beautiful day. Excited. Um, let me pray for us, and then we will jump in. Father God, as we just sung... Make us a people whose lives are centered on you. A people who live in the reality that you chose us, you redeemed us. God, that you called us with a purpose. Knowing that your, your love does not waver with the fickleness of our hearts. And that our identity and our purpose are rooted in your unchanging love. God, tune our hearts to your word this morning and shape us by your spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. All right. Well, we are in the third week of our series on the vision and mission of Christ Church Kingwood. In week one, we looked at the glory of God as the overarching vision for this church because that is God's vision for his church. Then we talked about gospel-centered worship as the fuel for the mission of the church, as the, the catalyst for living out the call of God in our lives. And then last week we talked about gospel-centered community, or how it is that we live together as God's people in light of the saving work of Jesus. And now this week we are talking about gospel-centered service and I don't want to puff you guys up too much. I feel like I may have done that last week. But once again, this is something that you're really good at. As I said, last week, you were a strange bunch of people. You're strange. The way you live and love and serve one another is in stark contrast to the world. It is abnormal. The simple acts of love, the care that you show, the food that you deliver, the time you spend talking with people who are hurting is huge. And that is gospel-centered service, sacrificing your time, your talents, your resources for the good of others. And this is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of the world. But this is both the life Jesus modeled and the life we have been called to live. And even as a church, this is why we give away so much money every year. We give away tons of money because love always involves sacrifice. And if we are going to reach the world, we must present something new and different from the world, something that challenges their understanding of this life. We must both, both speak their language and turn their value system on its head. And out in the world, money equates to value. Money equates to worth. And so we give generously. Not because we think money is of great value or ultimate importance, but because we know what it means to the world. When you hand someone $1,000 or 
or when you pay medical bills or, or put new tires on someone's car, it makes a huge impact. It flies in the face of everything they think about the world and our God, about Christianity as a whole, because the world says cling to what is yours. Amass more stuff. Protect and build your little kingdom. But the gospel, the life, and the words of Jesus say, pour your life out. Lay your life down for others. Use every resource at your disposal to proclaim a living hope that is greater than this world. A joy that is unshakable and an inheritance that is eternal. Sacrifice what is temporal and fleeting so that you might invite the world into what is eternal. That is gospel-centered service. And as we've discussed each week, just like our worship and our relationships, there is an emphasis on service being gospel-centered. Because we're not serving to gain something for ourselves. We're not serving to bolster our Christian resume or earn our way into God's presence. As we read in John or 1 John 4:19, we love because we were first loved. That is, God's love for us stirs us up to love and worship towards God. And that overflows in loving actions and service towards others. We are compelled to love because God loved us when we were enemies. He redeemed us when we hated him. He called us out of darkness and into his presence solely because of his love and grace and mercy. That is the very heart of the gospel. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, we have been called to serve others, to pour our lives out, not to earn God's favor, not to galvanize our position as children of God, but because we are already loved. We are already accepted because we have already been greatly served. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And just to be clear, in the, the eyes of the religious establishment in the first century, and, and honestly, the eyes of the world, Jesus was a failed prophet. He, he was a failure. He was a disappointment as Messiah. People were not looking for a king to come in humility and love and service. Not looking for that. They wanted a king who would wield worldly power for worldly gain. And how he came, what he came for, was both baffling and offensive. So they killed him. 
And the reality is, the more our lives mimic that of our Savior, the more we will grow to resemble Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. The more we will stand out in the world, the more the world will be baffled and sometimes offended by us. See, gospel-centered service is a response to the love that we have experienced from God through Jesus Christ, as well as all that has been promised in him. It is the result of gospel-centered worship fueling a desire to honor God and reflect his love in the way that we live. And it's important that we understand this. And it's, it's not just righteous actions that God is after. He isn't just looking for a community of people that check all the religious boxes. That's what we saw from the Israelites over and over, right? They would go into the temple. They might sing some songs. They'd sacrifice some stuff. They'd follow the law. And God's like, stop it. Stop it. Why do you keep coming in here? Your worship makes me sick. I wish one of you would just shut the doors. Do you really think I need bulls and goats? Right? God spoke all of creation into existence. He doesn't have a goat shortage. Right? That's weird. God doesn't need your goats. And the Israelites were like, but God, this is exactly what you told us to do. We're following the rules. You told us to come into your presence and bring goats. Right? Weird. But it wasn't just their physical presence that God was after. It was their hearts. He wanted them to come into his presence and delight in him. To find joy in his presence. And we see the same thing in the New Testament when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, hey, follow the law, bro. <laughs> the guy's like, doing it, nailing it, anything else I need to do. So at this point, the guy's probably feeling pretty good. Law, like, that's my jam. And Jesus looks, he's like, okay, yeah, one more thing. Just sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. Uh-oh. Right? You know how that goes. The man went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. Once again, Jesus didn't need this guy's stuff. Jesus didn't care about his money. Jesus spoke all of this stuff into existence, but Jesus looked into this man's heart and he knew that while he was super religious, while he was nailing the law, while every single person around this man probably thought he was the holiest, most faithful disciple on the planet, he loved his stuff more than he loved God. And when asked to choose, he went away sorrowful. Because he chose his stuff. He loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. And this is a long lead-in for a discussion on gospel-centered service, but it's crucial that we understand that God is not after our actions or our things. He's after our hearts. 
That righteous acts of service that please God are not done out of compulsion or obligation or guilt. They're not about boosting our ego or our religious fame or, or blowing up your Twitter friend stuff, whatever's good on the internet. They are the overflow of a heart that loves God above all else. And that is my hope for this church. Not that we check off more boxes of Christian service, but that we would be so moved by the love of God in Christ Jesus that we would be so transformed by the love that we have experienced in him that our hearts would overflow with joyful service and love. And so I just want to look at a few stories from Scripture that exemplify the service that we have been called to reflect as God's people. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 13, or you can scroll there on your little device. Beginning in verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garment, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And we've talked about washing feet before, right? It's nasty. It's just nasty. Touching other people's feet is not something that we generally want to do. It is weird. But as gross as it is now, imagine a culture where everywhere you go, you wear sandals, and it's dusty, and animals are just pooping everywhere. Washing feet was both a necessity, and it was funky. But it wasn't just the fact that washing feet was gross, it was humiliating. There was nothing more demeaning in the first century than cleaning another man's feet. That was a job for the servants. And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, taking off his outer garment, getting a basin of water, and wiping the dirt and the funk off of these men's feet. Can you imagine? Like, whoa, Rabbi, whoa. And the text frames the reality of what's happening so beautifully, saying, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. See, Jesus didn't wash the feet of the disciples out of weakness. It wasn't because he needed to gain anything. As we just read, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. He was the sovereign Lord over all. Jesus wasn't serving out of an absence of power. He was redefining what power is and how power should be used in this life. Jesus had ultimate power, and he chose to humble himself to the lowest social rung imaginable and wash their feet. And you know Peter's going to have a problem with that, right? Peter had a problem with everything. He's going to push back. That's just how Peter rolls. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who's like, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's more like, you ain't washing my feet, right? That's not a real question. And Jesus is like, what I'm doing, you don't understand. But afterwards you will. And this is that point where he's supposed to realize Jesus says you don't understand, so stop talking. 
right? You're not going to understand Peter afterwards. We're going to have a talk, but he's Peter. Peter's like, uh-uh, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus is like, oh, okay, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Peter's like, okay, Lord, not just my feet. Wash my hands, wash my head, right? Peter, he's all over the map, but you can't blame him. Like, you have to love the guy. Like, he's going to jump out of the boat, right? Mad props for that. He sank, but he's the only one that jumped. He's like, not a chance, Jesus. You're not going to wash my feet. No way. And Jesus is like, pushes back. He's like, okay, wash everything, Jesus. Wash me. But see, Peter, he just, he had no framework for what Jesus was doing. It made absolutely no sense. But after Jesus was done, he resumed his place at the table, and now it's like, hey, Peter, I told you I was going to explain this. Like, now Jesus explains it in verse 12, and he says, do you understand what I've done to you? Resounding no, right? Obviously didn't. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Wow. And what, what makes this so hard to swallow, the reason this was unthinkable to Peter, is that their culture, like ours, was built on the premise of power. That is, the more power you have, the more powerful you are, the wealthier you are, the more influential you are, the more talented you are, the less expectations there are on you to lower yourself and help others. And the less powerful or wealthy or talented, the more you're expected to serve those who have more than you. It's how every culture functions to this day. They are predicated on power. The wealthier you are, the fewer expectations there are on you. And that's what so many people in our culture are chasing, right? To get to that point where you have enough influence or power or money or whatever so that you can avoid menial tasks, so that people will serve you, not the other way around. And here we have Jesus affirming his authority. As we read in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the one true God. I am the Lord of all creation. I silence storms with a word. I heal the sick with a touch, and I tell dead people they're not dead, and they listen. I am beyond you in every way. And I do this to set an example. To show you that my kingdom is different from the kingdom of this world in every way. That in my kingdom, we do not operate like the world. We don't use our power. We don't use our position or influence to avoid serving those under us but rather we use our power and our position and our influence to actively lower ourselves in humility and to serve those around us. 
See, Jesus turns the power system of the world upside down on its head and calls us to reflect his kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world. And we see it again in Matthew 20, where James and John, I just, I would tell this story every Sunday, honestly. James and John uh, say to Jesus, like, like they want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in glory. And this is obviously like, this annoys the other disciples. It says they were indignant. But what's crazy is not just that these two guys were presumptuous enough to desire such an honored seat next to Jesus in glory. What is crazy is that they have their mom ask, right? And I honestly love that this is in the Bible. It makes me very happy, makes me feel better about some of the really dumb things that I've done in life. Like these guys literally, like they walked with Jesus. They were disciples. They spent all this time with Jesus. They did ministry with Jesus. And yet there was some point where they started talking to one another and decided that their maturity as leaders, their skill set in the kingdom of God, was at this point, of all the people around them, like these two guys should sit at Jesus' right and left hand. That's big. (laughs) But then, as they talk, they're like, hey, you know what? We should have mom ask. Right? That's what blows my mind. Like, even getting to the first step, they're like, okay, let's send our mom. I just, I honestly feel better about myself. But kids, listen up. There's a teachable moment here, okay? I talk to you because if I say it to you, your parents will laugh because you need it, but they really need it too. So just so you know, I'm just talking to the kids right now. Um, Your mom loves you. She probably feeds you. She may fix your hair on occasion. She's going to encourage you. And honestly, she's probably changed a lot of your poopy diapers. Okay? Just, it happens. But... If you think you're a responsible human being, which I know you all do, you're so grown up, and because you're so grown up and you're basically an adult in a little human body, mom shouldn't have to wake you up for school. I'm just going to throw that out there. She shouldn't have to remind you to take a shower. And when the time comes, I would not bring her with you on a job interview, okay? Just... A little bit of life lessons, like Proverbs, a little wisdom for you. I'll leave it there for now, but we can continue later. But that's not even the point here. The point is that James and John were viewing power through the lens of the world. They saw a position of honor, and they wanted it. Which, in turn, stirred up the indignation of the other disciples towards James and John around this idea of who's the greatest, right? Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy that all the disciples were sitting around saying, which one of us is the most awesome, right? Feel better about yourselves, like they sinned too. They were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus, you know, he's awesome. He Jesuses them right here. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And this is what's in their mind. And he says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love these verses. We, we talked about them back when we were in Mark 10, when Mark tells this exact same story. Jesus takes the power system of the world and he just flips it. He took all of his authority, all of his power, and he emptied himself in the service of others. He literally laid his life down so that we might have life. This is how the power structure works in the kingdom of God. This is what leadership looks like in the church or should look like in the church. If you have power or honor or authority or money, it has been given to you by God so that you might pull yourself out for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so how do we do this? How do we live lives of gospel-centered service? I mean, it obviously begins with the gospel. It begins by knowing and believing that all Christ has done for us and in us, by daily setting our minds on Christ and praying that his heart would become our hearts, that his humility would overcome the pridefulness of our flesh, that his love would overcome the entitlement of our flesh, that his grace would overcome the bitterness and the judgment of our flesh. Because it's only by the power of Jesus through the inner working of the Spirit that we as a church can live out this call. And it's a power that's been promised to us, a power that is now in us through the Holy Spirit. And because Christ now lives in us, we can live as heralds of this coming kingdom. Letting Christ's life be seen through us by the way we live and the way we love and the way we serve one another. And so, what does that look like? Practically, in our day-to-day -day lives, what does it look like to live out gospel-centered service? And I think Paul's words from Philippians 2 set the stage pretty well for us. In verses 3 and 4, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I think we could just settle in right there, but we'll keep reading. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is un-American right there. Right? It goes against every grain of our fleshly existence and everything this world has to say about life. Don't be driven by selfish ambition. Don't be driven by conceit. Don't only look at what's important to you. Don't build your own little kingdom where you're constantly trying to protect your time and your money and your energy from all of those people that are trying to get a piece of what's yours. But rather, look to the interests of others and count others more significant than yourselves. Paul calls us to live this way, and then he says in verse 5, have this mind among you among yourselves, which is yours 
in Christ Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves because it is yours in Christ. This is huge. He's not saying muster up all your willpower to serve others and to think of others. He's saying this is in you already through Christ. This mind and this heart that looks to the needs of others is yours in Christ. Look to him. Learn from him. Trust in him and his heart will become your heart. And this is my prayer, that God would rewire our hearts and our brains so that we don't view all of these relational connections that we have through the lens of what can I get from this person? How can I be served by this person? But rather, how can I show the love of Christ to the people God has put into my life? How do I serve them? How do I stir them up to love and good works. And it's often hardest to do this with the people closest to us, right? Spouses, siblings, parents, friends. Because if you're married, you got marriage problems. You got baggage, past hurt, disappointment, shame. And this baggage is always whispering in our ears, always giving us reason to think about ourselves, to think about our needs giving us ample reason not to love unconditionally, not to show grace, not to serve our spouse, reminding us why they definitely do not deserve our service. But the very nature of gospel-centered service is not something earned. It's not something deserved. It's something freely given. It is not a reflection of their righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, who laid down his life for us, serving us with humility and with grace while we were enemies. And we have been called to follow Christ's example. And if you're thinking, like, you don't know my spouse, you don't know my situation. You don't know how hard it really is. You're right. I don't. But Jesus did. And Jesus washed the feet of Judas that night. Have you thought about that? He washed Judas' feet knowing that he would betray him. Knowing the hatred in his heart. And kids, like we're back. Back to you. You're part of this community as well. You've been called by Jesus to reflect his love in the way that you serve. And just like I talked about with your parents, it is the people closest to you that it's usually the hardest to serve. Like brother, sister, or parents, right? We're horrible, right? We, we don't let you do anything. You think about how you can serve them and I'm not just talking about obeying your parents. Like, I will say that is a wonderful service. Uh, but I know we talked about you're all grown up, and I love that. You're, it's cool. It's awesome. So I'm just going to ask you, like I ask your parents, do you think about yourself, or do you think about more other people more often? 
just generally, do you think about yourself or others more? Do you think about what serves you or how you can serve others more? Right? And I'm just talking to the kids, okay? Like, this is just the kids. Think about that. Because as you grow, you are going to choose what kind of person you're going to be. You're going to choose whether you look to Jesus and follow his example of sacrifice and service and love, or you're going to look out at the world and say, I want all that stuff. I want to be cool. I want to be known. And your parents can't make that choice for you. But I will tell you that right now, every day, you are faced with that choice. You are making that choice every day. And it would serve you well to think about that. We must all decide if we are going to live for ourselves or live for Jesus. And you can't do both. And Scripture's clear. Living for Jesus, loving and serving others is true life. That's where true life is found. The world is striving to find meaning and purpose, and they're willing to look anywhere but Jesus to try and find it. But as we see so clearly, the world just dives deeper and deeper into sin and into self and will never find what they're looking for. Because we were created to be in a relationship with our God and to find our life and our identity and our hope in him. To join him in his plan of redemption by following Jesus and laying our lives down for others. And there is abundant joy and life when we follow Jesus. But it's hard. It will be costly. But this is the life that we've been called to. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and, and he said, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Right? We could just pause there. What's God's meaning for my life? What does God want for me? What does God want me to do? It's so hard to find scripture that tells us what God wants. Oh, hey, Jesus. He says, I gave you an example that you should do just as I have done. So at least we know one thing. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. This is gospel-centered service. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, the love of Christ controls us. It is a prayerful, humble, thankful life. So transformed by the love of Jesus Christ that his heart becomes ours. And that we gladly make ourselves less that others might experience his love more. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask that you would make us a people who live and who serve out of the reality of all 
that you have done in Christ. God, help us know your love in the depths of our hearts. Help us remind one another day after day that we are your children, bought with a price by the precious blood of Jesus. God, and let this truth compel us to lay our lives down for others, to look at Jesus' example of service and love and to long to imitate him so that others might be drawn into your love, that your glory might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Amen.